Welcome to the PeedsNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, and today we're going to talk about amoxicillin allergy in children. How to diagnose it, treating infectious diseases with second-line antibiotics, and antimicrobial stewardship. Stay tuned. Daycare is literally the dirtiest place in the world, filled with dozens of snotty-nosed children who have no respect for hygiene or microbiology. When my son started daycare for the first time, he kept a runny nose for about the first six months. He ended up with an ear infection and sinusitis in the winter, which we treated with high-dose amoxicillin based on the clinical practice guidelines from the AAP. He hadn't been finished with his antibiotic course for two days when he spiked another fever and the mucopurulent drainage came back with a vengeance. The clinical dilemma here was whether these new symptoms represented a recurrent sinusitis versus a new viral illness from the cesspool we send him to every week. Given his risk factors and the height of his fever to 103.5, we chose conservative treatment and moved to Augmentin suspecting some beta-lactam resistance among the daycare pathogens. After dose two of Augmentin, he developed an itchy hives rash all over his body, but no wheezing, vomiting, or pallor. We immediately gave Benadryl and discontinued the drug, deciding that we would watch his symptoms closely and cross our fingers that he had just gotten another virus. And he got better, which was great, but now we were left wondering, does he have an amoxicillin allergy? Amoxicillin is arguably the most popular antibiotic in pediatrics due to its safety, efficacy against common childhood pathogens, and palatability. Approximately 10% of the U.S. population has reported allergies to the beta-lactam agent penicillin, which results in the use of other broad-spectrum antibiotics that have poor safety and efficacy profiles that therein increase the risk for antimicrobial resistance and adverse events. Of the patients that report a penicillin allergy, less than 5% of those will have a clinically significant IgE-mediated or T-lymphocyte-mediated hypersensitivity reaction. In those patients with a severe hypersensitivity reaction, we're also concerned about some cross-reactivity with cephalosporins due to their beta-lactam classification. However, recent data suggests that 99% of people do not have a true allergy to cephalosporins and can safely receive a beta-lactam. Why is this a big deal? Because we must be good stewards of antibiotics. Using those more broad-spectrum antibiotics contributes to antibiotic resistance, particularly in methicillin-resistant Staph aureus and vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. It can also increase the likelihood of clinical failure and increase morbidity and mortality, which also includes the development of additional infections, such as Clostridium difficile, and nobody wants that. So what can you do? Document allergies appropriately and counsel families. We should discuss with parents what actually constitutes an allergy compared to a commonly expected side effect or a symptom of their underlying infection before we go classifying a patient as penicillin allergic. GI upset, including abdominal cramping, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, are among the common types of symptoms that often get misclassified as an allergy to penicillins, 
but their presence alone is more likely a symptom of an illness or a side effect of the drug and does not suggest a true allergic reaction. Another low-risk history is a child who has a family history of a penicillin allergy where mom, dad, or sibling has a documented, we think, penicillin allergy. Many parents may wish to add amoxicillin to the allergy profile for your patient, but this is not a contraindication to taking the drug. In those cases, you should not list penicillin as an allergy. Let's talk about what constitutes an allergy and the different types of risk. Low-risk allergy features would include symptoms of pruritus without a rash, or a reaction that occurred greater than 10 years prior without features suggestive of an IgE-mediated reaction. A moderate risk history includes urticaria or other pruritic rashes and reactions with features of IgE-mediated reactions. A high-risk history includes patients who have had true anaphylaxis, which should involve two body systems of the mucosa, respiratory tract, persistent GI symptoms, or hypotension immediately after exposure to the allergen. They may also have positive penicillin skin testing, recurrent penicillin reactions, or hypersensitivities to multiple beta-lactam antibiotics. A non-immediate reaction is just what it sounds like, a reaction that occurs after exposure to the drug in hours or days after the drug ingestion. These reactions tend to be less common, but they can be more severe and include things like serum sickness, acute generalized exanthematous pustulosis, drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, and toxic epidermal necrolysis. Once you've determined that the patient's reaction does indeed constitute an allergy, document the drug and reaction in the medical record so that it can be more easily evaluated later. Well, then what should you do? Many of these patients get referred to allergy for skin testing and other blood work, but these tests can be poor indicators of amoxicillin allergy due to their high false negative rate, especially in the non-immediate reactions such as serum sickness-like reactions. Direct amoxicillin challenge, also known as a provocation challenge, is the gold standard of drug allergy diagnosis and is an appropriate intervention for patients with low-risk histories. One cohort study by Mill et al. in 2016 took low-risk patients with a history of rash after taking amoxicillin and gave them a direct amoxicillin challenge. Among the 818 study participants who underwent the provocation challenge, 94.1% of them tolerated the amoxicillin. 17 patients, which only represented 2.1% of the group, reacted immediately. Immediate reactions were all mild in nature and consisted of hives only. All of them resolved within a few hours after treatment using second-generation antihistamines. A third group of patients had non-immediate reactions. 31 children, or 3.8% of the group, had reactions that took place at a median of 12 hours post-drug administration and were all mild in nature varying from a macular or papular rash with angioedema to a serum sickness-like reaction. They then prospectively followed all of the reactive patients for three years to assess for future reactions when exposed to antibiotics. In a telephone follow-up, 89.1% of patients who previously reacted 
reported that they tolerated subsequent full treatment with amoxicillin, and 10.9% developed delayed localized reactions to the skin that were identical to their initial reactions. This means that the graded provocation challenge had a specificity of 100%, a negative predictive value of 89.1%, and a positive predictive value of 100%, making a direct amoxicillin challenge a safe and effective means of assessing allergy in patients with skin reactions to the drug. Patients with more moderate symptoms should be referred to allergy for penicillin skin testing, which carries a negative predictive value between 95 and 100% when combined with an amoxicillin challenge. Great, so now we've demonstrated that many of these children can safely get amoxicillin. We can go back to prescribing it and avoid those risks of poor antibiotic stewardship. Well, sort of. Let's talk about the greater effects of amoxicillin allergies. Viles et al. in 2018 looked at the clinical and economic impact of removing the amoxicillin allergy label from children and discovered some interesting findings on an individual level and for the greater population. They followed 100 children for whom a penicillin allergy was removed after the child had a normal evaluation. In the year following the removal of this allergy, 58% of the prescriptions that were given to these children were for amoxicillin, and when they further explored, it appeared that 28% of parents were still somewhat uncomfortable or frankly uncomfortable with their child taking the drug. This has major implications for the primary care provider because the negative impact of being mislabeled as having a penicillin allergy is long-lasting. Despite negative testing results, parents still did not feel comfortable with their child receiving penicillin because the term allergy has scary connotations, and the parent simply could not unlearn this, even though amoxicillin is a better, safer drug to treat their child's illness. When primary care providers willingly name allergy to explain common side effects or illness symptoms, instead of having a conversation with the parents about what is normal— or withholding the label of allergy for a drug-related adverse event, they set up the parent for prolonged discomfort with removing this concept. An important conclusion of the study called for the need to start the cultural shift among healthcare providers to reduce the improper labeling of vague symptoms as allergies, and I couldn't agree more. The authors went on to describe the economic impact of their cohort. The study population of 100 children experienced a total cost savings of $1,368.13 and a total cost avoidance of $1,812 during that year alone. When they extrapolated the same rate of amoxicillin allergy from their population to their institution's larger local population, they calculated a potential savings of, wait for this, $192,223. And that's just for one year for one community. Imagine how that number could change on a national scale year after year if we just labeled amoxicillin allergies appropriately. I know I'm making it sound like none of these children actually have an allergy, but there are some patients with true allergy to penicillins. So what do you do if your patient really is allergic? Well, it's important to know whether their reaction was an IgE-mediated hypersensitivity reaction and what exactly you're treating. 
The IDSA guidelines on the diagnosis and management of streptococcal pharyngitis tell us that the treatment of strep throat in penicillin-allergic individuals may include a cephalosporin if they are not anaphylactically sensitive. They recommend a 10-day course of a more narrow second-generation cephalosporin, such as cephalexin, compared to some of the more broad-spectrum third-generation cephalosporins, like ceftonir. In patients with anaphylaxis, you can use clindamycin for 10 days, which has excellent sensitivity rates, but is certainly less palatable. Another option is azithromycin, but take caution because increasing antibiotic resistance in recent years has meant that 5-8% to of strains in the U.S. are macrolide resistant. You should also pay attention to the azithromycin dose here because it's different from other pathogens you might treat, and the IDSA recommends 12 mg per kg to a max of 500 mg once daily for 5 days. Conversely, the AAP recommendations for first-line antibiotics in penicillin-allergic patients for the treatment of acute otitis media include ceftonir at 14 mg per kg per day in 1-2 to two doses, cefuroxime at 30 mg per kg per day in two divided doses, cefpodoxime at 10 mg per kg per day in two divided doses, or ceftriaxone at 50 mg per kg administered intramuscularly daily for two to three days. But they make no promises on how well these drugs will cover resistant strains of the common acute otitis media pathogens. Some studies showed susceptibility of strep pneumoniae isolates as low as 70-80% to 80% for ceftonir and cefuroxime, compared with 84-92% to 92% sensitivity to amoxicillin. It feels like you could very quickly end up calling ENT for tympanostomy tubes if your patient truly cannot take amoxicillin or cephalosporins. The community-acquired pneumonia guidelines are more vague because the risks are higher in respiratory disease and the pathogens can be wide-ranging. The good news is that a majority of community-acquired pneumonias caused by viruses in preschool-aged children, which needs no antimicrobial therapy. But when a bacterial origin is suspected, treatment is not well-defined and it should be individualized. They actually recommend an oral provocation challenge for amoxicillin or an oral cephalosporin that has substantial activity against strep pneumoniae so that we can remove that allergy label and use the most effective drugs. Other options for treatment include clindamycin or macrolide if it's known to be susceptible. For children with bacteremic pneumococcal pneumonia, particular caution should be taken in selecting alternatives to amoxicillin given the potential for secondary sites of infection, including meningitis. Did you think that you'd make it through an entire podcast without me talking about vaccines? Yeah, right. In both the AOM and Community Acquired Pneumonia Guidelines, the importance of immunization against pneumococcal disease and H. influenza B is discussed as a major impact factor for improving pediatric disease. That's one way we can avoid needing to prescribe antibiotics in the first place. I'm sure you don't always think of vaccination as a way that you can be a good steward of antibiotic use, but encouraging parents to accept the Hib and Prevnar vaccines is a valuable and proactive step in disease prevention, rather than needing to be reactive and prescribe antibiotics. We've talked about it before, but it never stops being relevant. The most important factor for vaccine-hesitant parents to accept immunizations for their child is an earnest one-on-one conversation with their trusted healthcare provider. 
It's not a public service announcement from the president or Beyonce. It's you in your office, in that room, sitting on your little stool, talking personally with the parent. Don't shy away from the conversation because it has become controversial. Because you are the one person who's going to make the difference, both on an individual level and for the greater population. There's lots of potential for future research on amoxicillin allergies, including administration of the direct amoxicillin challenge in either the emergency department or the primary care office. As you build your habits with evidence-based practices, I want you to remember the importance of accurate allergy diagnosis and documentation, as well as vaccine promotion, so that you contribute positively to the future of antibiotic stewardship for us all. I'm Becky Carson, take care.